This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's all about the Benjamins, baby. Well, not quite. I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. A founder, advocate, writer in many genres, it turns out, board member to just about every organization that she's involved in, and the first woman to be appointed deputy comptroller of the currency. I'm thrilled to have Joanne Barefoot stop by today to talk about her career and her advice for everyone trying to make a difference in finance. Naturally, Joanne is the host of her own great podcast called Barefoot Innovation and currently the CEO of the Alliance for Innovative Regulation, where she spends much of her time advocating for everyone in finance to, quote unquote, look up. That's where I'm going to start today. Because at the beginning of 2022, Joanne wrote an essay encouraging everyone in finance to focus on the horizon of possibility. In the venture and startup ecosystem, the phrase faster than ever before is so common as to be a cliche. But Joanne doesn't live only in the world where innovation is a constant goal. She's a convener, a seeker of convergence, in her words, and so her advice looks particularly prescient in the context when we note that it came at the start of a crypto winter and a period of significant decline in excitement for fintech valuation and funding. Today, we're going to touch on a bunch of topics, from the big tech trends that are impacting all of us, social trends that have spanned her career, and how regulatory change happens slowly, but also very fast. Uh, our philosophy possibly speak tongues. Joanne, welcome to the show. Thank you, Elias. It's wonderful to be here. So, as I mentioned in the start, you did a podcast essay in January 2022 with the refrain that we all need to look up to the horizon. So, why is that the right advice for this year and this moment in finance? Yeah. Thanks for asking me that. That was one of our more popular uh, podcast episodes. It was kind of a riff on the movie Don't Look Up, which is the one where the comet is heading to the United States and people are trying not to think about it. And uh, so picking up on that, I tried to make the argument at the beginning of the year that people really do need to look up at the horizon. And uh it's a function of the exponential change curve. You know, the fact that exponential change looks gradual for a long time, and then suddenly it's spiking vertical with that sort of dog leg shaped, uh, hockey stick shaped uh, curve on a chart. And when people get caught underneath that curve in a technology environment like we're in today, a lot of them will, will never catch up because it's continuing to accelerate, you know, it's it's not going to stop and wait for you. So I tried to look at the different players in the ecosystem in different ways. And one of them was to the industry and particularly the fintechs, 
to recognize that regulation is hurtling toward them. And I think that that's been proven true uh, as we've gone through this year, these issues are all heating up. That doesn't mean we're gonna have a regulatory system in place to deal with all the novel issues uh, in the immediate future, but it does mean that the risk is rising. Like, you know, it's mushrooming everywhere as business models and business relationships and, and practices are all coming under more and more regulatory scrutiny at every level, regulators all over the world and, and in the U.S., in the different states. And uh, people need to be ready for that. You can't sit around and wait till it hits you. You know, you've really got to figure out how are you going to be ready to play in a, in a more regulated space. Is it just an accident that sort of markets sell off and regulatory scrutiny goes up? Or, or is that like the foxes and the hares where these things are somehow correlated through time? I think there are other factors, but I do think that regulation is a piece of that story. Yeah, the, the fact that people have been sort of happily uh, doing their thing and, you know, feeling like they can do what they want to do. And all of a sudden, you know, it's a victim of being a victim of your own success when suddenly the sector gets big enough, whether you're talking fintech in general or crypto specifically gets big enough, starts to go mainstream, and then the politicians wake up and look at it and go like, this this could hurt people uh, or this could cause other problems. And so they look at it. The other message that I had on looking up is for the regulators and the policymakers themselves, because honestly, Amaya, I don't think there's anywhere near enough focus on the urgency of improving the technology that we're using to oversee financial services of all kinds. And there's work on it. We work with regulators all over the world. We are, they're all making, they're all going in the right direction. There's rapid learning, rapid uh, progress, but the delta between what how fast they're moving and how fast I think they need to move is widening every day. And that is filling up with risk. And we're going to have problems where regulation, whether it's coming from legislators or from the regulators themselves, is going to fail. You know, we're going to accidentally quash good innovation. We're going to accidentally fail to contain dangerous uh, innovation we're going to misregulate. We're going to confuse the market with mixed signals and different regulators doing different things. And, you know, we really have to get on top of it. It's like there's there's very different time frames that, that are in this look up, look to the horizon zone. Because on the one hand, if you think about this current market environment, whether it's fintech or crypto, you know, entrepreneurs, innovators, I think partly your message for them is like, hey, guys, pay attention because you need to take policy seriously. But that's like a right now message. And then for the regulators, it seems like your message is a little bit like under no circumstances will this not be transformative over, I don't know, five years, two years, 10 years, some, but, but you know, a time measured in, in all of our professional lifetimes, it's going to transform. And so there, there's two very different timeframes in that messaging. Is that 
Is that a fair way to frame it? Or do you think that um, even the message on, you know, the regulators, like they don't even, you know, they don't even have two years. They don't have five years. They have to, right. maybe it's about, you have to invest now to get there in two years. But how would you frame that up for the time frame that the regulators need to act on in your view? I think they need to act now. It's going to take them, you know, a decade or two to finish that transformation. That's not, that's not something you can do in two years. But if you wait two years, Elias, you know Nick Cook, formerly with the Financial Conduct Authority, and he is now on our team at AIR. And Nick, back when he was a regulator, said something I've never forgotten, which was that at the FCA, they realized that if that they had to move ahead, even though they weren't sure what to do. And he mm-hmm. said, we realized that if we waited two years to figure out exactly what we thought we should do, we would be 10 years behind where we needed to be. This is so uncomfortable. You know, I'm a former regulator. Um, you're a former Treasury Department person. You know, it's not easy to move forward when you don't know exactly what the path is. But they, we have to learn to do that. The other thing I'll say is, you know, there could be catastrophic failure if we don't act on that longer time horizon. But we're going to see failures on a smaller scale cropping through. I think an example is Robin Hood and, and GameStop, where, you know, the regulators are sort of, they've got, they've got tools for looking at the market and they're looking for certain kinds of risks that are the ones that have always been there. And yeah. all of a sudden, out of left field, you've got, you know, a bunch of gamers doing something to a stock price and the liquidity crisis and so on. You know, I mean, we're going to see more and more of that just coming from unexpected risks that the regulators can't find because they have blind spots because they don't have good enough data and good enough technology. Their data is lagging. You know, they get quarterly, the bank regulators get quarterly call reports. You know, that's not fast enough. And they get bits of information, not complete information. I think this idea of move ahead, even though you don't know, it speaks to another place where you've done some really interesting work where you tried to look at the barriers to to innovation and regulation and they were as much cultural as legal or or you know legally enforced culture like you know h- how people think about the administrative procedure act or things like that so when you talk to regulators about innovation how do you balance the message around culturally just have to accept more uncertainty versus a kind of, hey, you need to invest in better, you know, web servers or hiring developers or whatever the technology du jour is? The technology is there to do most of what we need to do. It may, it's not necessarily adapted for financial services uh, regulation, but the technology exists. And of course, it's changing all the time. And the, the challenges are with the people. And again, I'm not criticizing them. Uh, I'm a former regulator. I think they have the hardest job. They, they're not allowed to move fast and break things and, <laughs> or any of that. You know, they have to get things right. But nevertheless, they don't have the right skill sets. It's very hard for them to hire tech people in this kind of environment, people who have a background in digital technology, their procurement rules. I was talking with a regulator today who was talking about the difficulty of procuring good technology because we have 
old rules that are important. They're seeking important uh, controls on government procurement as they should be. But I talked to one regulator one time who looked at a demonstration of something we were talking about and said, uh, if we decided to get that today, we would have it in seven years. Seriously, by which time it would have been obsolete. So they're just handcuffed by all of these impediments. And then on top of that, they're culturally risk averse. And, you know, as we like to say, that's a feature, not a bug. Um, They're supposed to be careful and cautious, but it makes them slow. And we're going to have to figure out how to help them go faster anyway. Yeah. I mean, one of the areas that's gotten a lot of attention and you've been, I think, a big advocate and and explainer of is this idea of regulatory sandboxes. Mm-hmm. So tell us just from your perspective, having watched this concept develop over years, and I think FCA, the UK Financial Conduct Authority, is sort of probably the preeminent example of, of running a sandbox in a developed country. Yeah. What do sandboxes do and are they able to address some of the issues that you're talking about? I, it sounds like they're not the only issue, but but how do you how do you think about what sandboxes can do in this context? Yeah, you know, sandboxes exist for reasons that are articulated as uh, helping innovators uh, get regulatory clarity and that type of thing. And they they can do that. But I think their biggest benefit is it's rapid learning for the regulators themselves and it's hands-on. There's a big difference between, you know, sitting in office hours and having a demo of a product or something compared to working with those founders, if it's a fintech product, and understanding how the thing actually works and understanding understanding it at an early stage. The term sandbox has... Uh, not had a positive reception in the United States. I won't take the time to tell the examples of it, but there was one state regulator who famously said sandboxes are for children and financial consumers are not toys, you know. Fair enough. So let's call them labs or greenhouses. But if you think about it, regulators have to learn about tech innovation in the industry and they have to innovate for themselves You can't innovate unless you can try things and you can't try things unless you can have some of them not work. So they need a safe space. And so does the industry, a safe space that's ring fenced so that if something bad happens, it doesn't escape into the wild and, you know, harm the larger community. Let's catch that early through this close, rapid learning. I'm a big, big believer in the need for it. In the U.S., I mean, one of the big architectural differences, say, between the U.S. and the U.K. is in the U.K., you actually need a federal license to get into business. In the U.S., in most instances, you can get into business, you know, unless banking is slightly different. But in most instances, you can get to you can get to market for some experiments in just one state. Uh, We see fintechs all the time that are licensed in only one state. And so in the U.S., the state's can sort of function like a sandbox, right? We have some states with pretty, um, you know, less strict banking rules. We have some with more strict banking rules. So there, there's one obvious point you've already touched on, which is, well, the federal regulators don't get to learn if the states are doing the experiments. Do you think that this, that we need federal sandboxes on the, on the 
innovators side um, or are the state and state sandboxes or state labs that have been set up sufficient to, to get people to market? I mean, we have a pretty vibrant fintech market. Yeah, I like to see both. Um, again, for educating the regulators, the, the point you just made, most people don't think about the fact that the federal regulators hardly touch the early stage high tech innovators puts them on their back foot. You know, it's a disadvantage mm. because they're not seeing this technology up close. Some, you know, some of them are supervising a partner bank or something like that, or a third party relationship. But let's face it, the innovation, the cutting edge innovation, both that's going to be great for the consumer and the risky things too, are not in the banks. They're, in the fintech world. And then what proves itself out there uh, migrates into the banking sector. And our, but our federal regulators dominate financial regulation in terms of policy thinking and, and shaping uh, interaction with legislators and so on. And that's all the more reason in my mind why the federal regulators need to have opportunities to get, just get closer to the tech. On the federal side, the SEC has a long history of you know something called no action letters, where you can come to the SEC and say, we're going to try to do this thing. It looks like it fits in the rules this way, but we're not sure. And in a certain way, that is a kind of a sandbox. Um, more recently, the CFPB launched and has recently discontinued a program called Project Catalyst, which was using similar type of authority. Um, Having you know been around the CFPB for its entire history, having served on the Consumer Advisory Board there, how do you interpret the end of Project Catalyst? How big a blow is this, or will the possibility of innovation and and kind of experimentation within consumer fintech sort of live on? How do you see that playing out? Most of the uh, agency innovation initiatives and offices, and, and all the major agencies have them now, which was not the case a few years ago. Most of them are evolving into new stages of maturity. And in a lot of cases, that's an excess, a success story. Uh, I was just hearing about one that's going to be announced pretty soon that's pretty exciting, that's going to expand significantly on what this agency had been doing. Um, and also, when the Biden administration came into office, the new agency heads have all been evaluating these programs and putting their own stamp on them and so on. It's also the case that this administration is more fintech skeptical than the prior one was. And there's been a lot more um, concern about downside risk, I think, which, of course, is substantial and less focus on upside opportunity of whether FinTech could actually make life better. And of course, we also in the US, the chair of the Senate Banking Committee, Sherrod Brown is also skeptical of the benefits of FinTech. So I think the innovation offices have been going through some iteration based on that. Um, the CFPB still has an office of innovation. It's doing, among other things, it's working on the uh, the new small business disclosure uh, game plan, see how we can apply technology to making that efficient and effective and valuable to people. 
I I will also just say very quickly. I think no action letters have a pl- have their place, but it's not my favorite regulatory tool. Regulators always have to worry about whether it seems to be conferring some sort of stamp of approval that might be misused in marketing. And then they also, and as is the case in the ones in the CFPB, it's also true that that if if they've given a no action letter on something like a an underwriting model, it's going to be different a year or two later, probably. Right. So at some right. point, it, the, the fit isn't there. So I, you know, I'm very hopeful that the CFPB will continue to be working on innovation in lots of interesting ways. Uh, but that program is, you know, we've talked some about the, the structural and cultural issues, but there are at least the possibility of real technology breakthroughs. And one of the ones that I think you and I have spent a lot of time talking about over the past couple of years is the idea of machine readable yeah. uh, regulation, machine readable de- uh, disclosures. Can you talk to us, what, what is that? What's the vision? And then what's the, what's the state of the art right now? So lots of agencies are working on machine readable applications of diff- actually lots of different kinds of things. The whole realm of reg tech uh, includes companies that are trying to read regulations and use technology to help the industry comply more easily. Uh, as you know, there's a whole profession, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of rules, and um, it's hard to comply. I was a compliance consultant for many years, and uh, you know, I think it's fair to say there's not, I don't think there's a financial institution that is in complete compliance at all times. You know, it's just a constant struggle, and it's expensive. I did some, I was at Harvard for two years uh, as a senior fellow working on how technology is changing consumer finance and how to regulate it. And I looked at a lot of the work on the costs of regulatory compliance. They're hard to measure, but nobody argues that they are not high. They're a very substantial part of the cost of receiving financial services, which makes them less affordable and accessible to to people who are not, are not included today. So, um, but, but, so the idea would be to make it easy to track changes, to see how they would flow through your compliance systems. And then the sort of moonshot vision of this, which actually was connected to some of the work I did at Harvard, is that someday for some types of regulation, we might even go to machine executable code in which the regulator would issue the rule change in the form of code and the industry could implement it automatically. Almost like a widget, right? That, that they'd sort of write write the code. Yeah. If you connected it to the right data source, the disclosure would come out automatically and compliantly. Uh, yeah, yes, exactly. Or the disclosure or just the compliance itself, you know, the, right. the programming of the, the um, industry's computers. The FCA did a text run on this uh, in at the end of 2017, and uh, got it to work. Made a correct change in you know in a set of, of test data, and there's a video of this on the internet. When it worked, everyone in the room jumped up and cheered. And I like to say, how, how often do we see regulators and 
you know, bankers and industry people cheering together, you know. Yeah, high five, high um, fives all around. Yeah, exactly. Is this, so is this a little bit like farther. quantum computing though, Joanne, that like, you know, quantum computing, they've made it work for two bits and then they made it work for 10 bits and however many bits the the, the geniuses um, at, at Big Tech have made it work for, but but we're still, I don't know, 10 years away from, from commercial application? Or do you think this is obviously less complicated technically than quantum computing? So is there the hope that this could start to happen fast? To the question that you asked earlier, it, it will be slow and fast at the same time, I think. And, it's, and it'll happen piecemeal. I was a judge in the G20 tech sprint on first ever global reg tech uh, tech sprint. And uh, I was astonished at the quality of the, the competition entries. And, and they picked, you know, a piece of the regulatory realm to work on creating digital regulatory reporting. You know, could we digitize the information in the industry so that the regulator could either pull it or it could be pushed to the regulator uh, but in a form that the regulator then could automatically read and analyze with AI. Uh, there's a lot of work all over the world going on in this. And I think in fits and starts, we'll work our way toward using these kinds of tools where appropriate. Um, and then my hope and dream is that at some point we hit that critical mass where it's proven itself we have the expertise in the agencies and we begin to convert the whole system to it from analog to digital. That's what it is at the heart of it. Yeah. It's, it's interesting, Joanne. I love the phrase um, slow and fast at the same time, because as, as you know, one of the, the debates that, that we've had a lot of times is sort of like, is change happening faster than ever or, or not? So I, I like that. I like that framing. You know, when you think about that question, what makes you confident that, that, that things are changing faster than they were 20 years ago or 40 years ago? The technology itself. I am absolutely sure of it, uh, although things have changed, obviously. You know, it, it's a mixed picture. But, I mean, for one thing, we just have Moore's Law. You know, Gordon Moore in 1965 said computing power is going to double every 24 months. And he was right. It has. Right. And that all by itself has put so much computing power in everybody's, you know, phone and everything else. Uh, and right. and on, today, on top of that, we have artificial intelligence. A book that I really commend to your listeners is Unscaled by Hemant Tuneha, who uh, talks about the, how artificial intelligence is accelerating everything. And why didn't artificial intelligence accelerate everything when it was invented? You know, because that was the original prediction. And the answer to that is there wasn't enough data to put it to use on. Now there is. Now, you know, some people claim data is doubling every 12 hours, you know, when it used to double every uh, thousand years or whatever. Um, right. And that these breakthroughs through this convergence of technology is causing these huge leaps. Another book I love actually is um, The Future is Faster Than You Think. And talking about an example is that we had people predicting flying cars and they haven't happened yet. 
And now they are. Now we've got flying taxis in some parts of the world because you needed the you needed the artificial intelligence, you needed the lightweight materials, you needed the drone technologies, and you needed the GPS capabilities, none of which were there when people first started you know, flying. Um, th this is happening in financial services, the convergence of big data, internet of things, blockchains, voice technologies, natural language processing, you know, all of these things are coming together at the same time and enabling things that were not possible before faster and faster. They each have their own S curves, right? That things go they fast and they go really fast. It's, right. You know, then they, you know, they, mm -hmm. they, they start off slow, they go really fast up for adoption and then they peter out. But in what, what often happens is these technology cycles is one S curve net leads naturally to the other. Right. Exactly. And I think maybe that's, that's the, the insight that you're bringing, which is there are enough different areas of research that are each generating and contributing that, that we can start to feel like the whole curve is vertical rather than uh, one S curve after another. You know, one of the things as we close up, I wanted to just sort of reflect on your career and the fact that you were the first woman to be deputy comptroller of the currency at the OCC. And it's still true that there's the only time a woman has been the comptroller is Julie Williams, and then only in transitional stints. That's in some ways kind of surprising and not surprising at once. Um, so just as you lived that, did it feel like you were a pioneer or did it feel like a natural sort of just the time had come and that's just what happened? Like, how did it feel, you know, being a, a pioneer in that way? I love the question. I, it definitely was unavoidable to realize that you were a pioneer because you can't imagine how many times I was the only woman in the room in those days. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was more often than not that there were no other women, you know, at whatever level I was working at, and then maybe one or two. And so that's been a gratifying journey to see more and more awesome women, you know, everywhere. But I will tell you, Amias, I, when I was young and the laws that we have today, ensuring fairness and equal opportunity and employment and credit and other fields, when they were fairly new, I took for granted that by now we'd be in a whole different place. You know, you would have had women as controller of the currency and and you would have had people of color as controller of the currency you know beyond anything that has happened so far and the i what found it so sobering when the me too movement hit not to find that there was bad behavior because that's going to happen among human beings but to find out how much institutional tolerance and even protection around that bad behavior had been part of the story in all kinds of, you know, private sector companies, public companies, universities. And then a couple years later uh, to go through with the country, the murder of George Floyd, and to look at the same patterns, you know, we have a lot of structural bias in our systems and we live with the legacy of it. And I just think that this is one of the reasons we created AIR, which is a nonprofit, trying to help the financial system be more fair, more accessible, 
more resilient through technology. And um, we have a long way to go, don't we? I mean, the, the persistence of wealth gaps and gender gaps in systems that are filled with talented women. We do a lot of work at AIR on women's economic empowerment and the financial system all around the world. And Yeah, and, and globally, it feels like the connection has been made more strongly between uh, economic growth and uh, inclusion. And that that is um, at certain levels of you know GDP per capita, it's just unavoidably obvious the most important thing that you can do. At higher levels, sometimes you can get into more complicated arguments. But if we look at the last 50 years, how much of GDP growth was actually the fact that women came into the yeah. labor force in my in my my mother's generation and, and in your generation and how much has that contributed to where we are now and i think maybe that's sometimes underappreciated yeah i do too when you think about you know connecting these two topics right these cultural changes which are big have nothing to do with the particularities of um, being a lawyer at the occ and these you know driving technological changes do you think that they will interact in a virtuous cycle or, or are you uh, worried that they could create a, a vicious cycle of entrenching certain power structures, entrenching certain unfairnesses? So that's probably my favorite question because the answer to that is it depends how well we regulate it. <laughs> that's why we're working in this area that we know to many people it's very arcane and you know, you talk to tech people about financial regulation and, you know, they, they're falling asleep. But it's so important and exciting, isn't it? Because the tech is neutral. Uh, it's amoral. It can be used for good or bad and will be. And this is where regulation has to play a role. Certainly in financial markets, they have to be regulated. You know, we've, we've known that for centuries, uh, but there are smarter, newer ways to do it. And we, you know, at Air, we like to say that financial regulation is an invisible force in all of our lives. It is protecting us from being exploited. It is protecting vulnerable people from being discriminated against. It's making sure that you have a fair chance to start a business or go to college or, or um, get a, buy a house or whatever it is. And um, it works well a lot of the time. And I've devoted my career to trying to make it work better. But, you know, Amaz, I've devoted the most of my career to trying to solve problems through regulation. And regulation can only take us so far. There are problems we could solve with better technology, especially combined with regulation that regulation alone will never solve. You know, to make financial services more affordable, more accessible, more fair, more inclusive, uh, better at combating financial crime, which we're failing at totally today, better at maintaining a stable, sound banking system. If we had had the tools uh, that we should have had or could have had before the financial crisis, we might have avoided it. The regulators can't see what's happening in the system 
because it's changing too fast and their data isn't, they've got fragmentary data today. And we need to change that so they can really understand the patterns of risk and the, and the upside opportunities and um, just put the, the right amount of touch. It'll never be perfect, we know that, but put the right amount of touch and early, uh, early alert into preventing harm. Well, Joanne, it's always a pleasure, and we really appreciate your willingness to, to join us today. So thank you for coming by. Always a pleasure to see you as well. Thank you for having me, and give my best to Chris, as always. All right. Thanks, Joanne. Bye-bye. What a great conversation with Joanne. Notwithstanding her emphasis on the importance of technology, her reflections on her own path-breaking career underscore the point the challenge of innovation is with the people. I tend to be a bit more skeptical than she is that tech change is happening faster now than it did in the decades that humans invented cars, planes, or nuclear reactions. But I thought Joanne put it perfectly when she said that change will happen fast and slow at the same time. And for listeners to the show, whether policymakers, regulators, or innovators, she reminded us that the future is, quite obviously, still uncertain. And the outcomes we achieve will depend on just how well we apply technology to both sides of government and finance. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer, DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you.